Welcome to God's Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to do, hopefully it's going to be quick. Uh, hopefully it's going to be quick. I don't know how much time I got tonight, but we're going to take a look at this uh, critique of open theism by Dr. David Hunt. And, you know, it's your standard run-of-the-mill type of stuff. And uh, I don't know how stimulating or anything actually that he's presenting that's new. Um, maybe not so much, but he does talk about some things that are a little bit interesting, and I'd like to touch a couple of them. They throw up this chart, different types of open theists, and uh, let's let's see what kind of open theists. There's there's three types, according to them. I think there's a lot more types than that, so we'll kind of go through that. We'll go to the start of this clip. It looks like Warren's here and Elizo's here. Hello, uh, random people at uh, nighttime during a Sunday night. Uh, nobody's got things to do. Nobody's got work tomorrow, so that works. All right, hidden play. And you've put together this slide that is really helpful at distinguishing these three views. And so this is David Hunt's slide, and uh, he he talks about these different categories of, you know, are there contingent truths? And um, depending on the type of open theist you are, he puts yes or no's for those types. And the types don't themselves have labels. Yeah. So, um, uh, I mean, the, the... Yeah, so David Hunt himself, I haven't seen too much interaction he's had with open theism previously. On the God is Open page, I think we talked about one of the times in his life in which he's interacted with open theism. So I'm not sure. I don't think he's like a major player in the open theistic world. He's written a lot of books. He's a very prolific guy, and he seems to be uh, uh, genuine and uh, somewhat honest. He seems to be, he's hes not vitriolic, right? He seems to be more of a level-headed guy. The first one, and the one that maybe we'll focus on later in the, in the discussion, um, rests on the idea that there aren't any future contingent truths um, at all. Um, and uh, you'll see on the chart there the names of a few proponents of, of this type. Um, uh, there's there's a, a lot of them. I think this is the predominant position that uh, that openness uh, take. So to illustrate their their position, suppose I say I'm going to have a BLT sandwich for lunch uh, uh, tomorrow. Um, you know, since this assertion is about the contingent future, uh, that is, the future could still go either way when it comes to my having or not having a BLT sandwich for lunch tomorrow. Uh, its truth is as yet unsettled, right? Uh, it feels like we've talked about this BLT sandwich before. It feels like uh, that was a subject of a previous podcast so, and someone's pre previous prior example. I do think it's interesting in his chart he has, is God omniscient with a little asterisk? I don't, I don't know. I, I did watch through this part and I didn't, th I don't think they quite defined it. I might've missed it, but is God omniscient? Type one says yes. Type two says no. Type three says no. And uh, the proponents of type two, Hasker, Swinburne, Van Inwagen. I don't know Van Inwagen, but I don't think Hasker is going to say that God's not omniscient. And Swinburne, I don't think he's going to say God's not omniscient. They might reject classical omniscience, but 
it, to be an open theist, you have to reject classical omniscience. That's that's just mandatory. <laughs> David says, I, I noticed you were wearing a black shirt. Yes, always. Um, so the assertion might become true. Uh, Jeff asks, is this the David Hunt who also wrote one of the Four Views books? I did see a Four Views books in his bibliography when I looked through his Wikipedia page. So I believe so. I believe that that's that's who we're talking about here. Tomorrow, that's one way to, to look at it. Uh, when and if I have a BLT sandwich for lunch, but it isn't yet true. So that, that's the position. Right? Mm -hmm. um, now, most philosophical participants in the debate uh, agree that truth is some kind of correspondence uh, with reality. Um, and the reality... So I like how right here he's talking about something that's very critical that we don't actually talk about too much when we're dealing with theology. What is knowledge? What is the definition of knowledge? Is it a justified true belief? Is it a justified true belief with caveats? Um, that's pretty critical to this debate because uh, classical proponents, people who believe that God has classical omniscience, want to define omniscience as or knowledge as corresponding on a one-to-one -one ratio inherently with uh, reality. So God's knowledge is not like a mediated knowledge. It's not like ours where, yeah, for all we know, we're in the matrix and we're just experiencing everything through simulated injects, right? So uh, the probability of that is very low, but there's going to be still some probability. So none of the truth that we know about the exterior world itself is let's say Cartesian. It's it's not going to be like uh, infallible knowledge of the world. We have mediated knowledge of the world. And th those views could be false. Probably not. Uh, most, most definitely not. Uh, but uh, there is a probability that we do have some sort of uh, hallucination that we're experiencing, something like that. That's not the knowledge that they want to give to God. And so they might, that's always a bait and switch. They like to talk about our knowledge. Oh, this, this whole example that they're using about BLTs, it's about our knowledge about how we talk about us eating BLTs. And then they'll, they'll transpose those concepts and ideas onto God. They won't, they won't speak consistently. So you get a lot of bait and switches when you start talking about knowledge and omniscience and knowledge of the future, knowledge of the past. Well, well, fundamentally, they believe God has a different type of knowledge than we have. And so when we're talking about truth claims that are true to us, that we verify, that's not the knowledge that they want to apply to God. And, and they'll bait and switch it like, oh, see, you say you can know this thing about the future. You say you can know this thing about the past. Uh, therefore, our model of God, when we're attributing this different type of knowledge to God, is uh, true as well, based on based on our example of your knowledge. It doesn't flow like that. They're, they're fundamentally different things, fundamentally different types of knowledge. My eating a BLT sandwich, this is how the view would go, um, supposing that's what I do, doesn't arrive until tomorrow, right? Um, and hence, since truth is a correspondence with reality, its truth doesn't arrive until tomorrow. Uh, since there's no, no truths about uh, what is still future and contingent, there's no truths there for God to know, right? So the uh, open theist God does know less than the classical theist God, but he's still omniscient.
there's just fewer truths to be known. Um, namely, there aren't any of these, you know, supposed uh, future contingent truths. So okay. that's, that's one line to take. Yeah. All right. So I've done an interview with Patrick Todd, which is one of the individuals he listed there as a proponent yeah. of type one. So for the viewers that are interested in hearing the development of an argument for why all future, well, Patrick Todd argues that not just that uh, there's not truths of future contingents, but he argues that they're all false. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So the viewer can go check that interview out if, if you're interested in hearing more. Yeah. So if, if truth, if there's no such thing about truths of the future, you know, it's uh, that that will tie into people's idea of not omniscience. So if they're claiming God's omniscience is holding all true facts, let's pretend there's a model of the world in which everything can be broken down into propositions. And then those propositions have truth values. A lot of people will say that's their definition of knowledge, that God has direct unmediated access to all those propositional truth values. And uh, that's, that's kind of like what he's talking about here. If there's no future truths, um, then those aren't going to be part of God's knowledge set. But I don't like the way how they use knowledge interchangeably with our normal understanding of knowledge. I know I'm going to work tomorrow. Yeah. How do we know that's true? Once it happens, it, I, I got uh, a reasonable uh, expectations of that happening. And then when it occurs, then you could say, oh, yeah, you lived your life with that expectation. That ex expectation was pretty probable. And then it turned out, yes, you had knowledge of that. That doesn't mean it's infallible knowledge or a non-mediated knowledge or anything like that. That just means I generally, my general expectations occurred. And so uh, with, with this idea that there's no actual truth values in the future, you might get into weird things. Like uh, I know Alan Rhoda is a proponent of if the, I, the party will start at eight o'clock. He says that's, that's a statement about current conditions and equivalent to the statement we plan on the party starting at eight. Therefore, it's not a false statement. Uh, the problem with that type of definition of knowledge is you, you can't make false or wrong claims about the future if that's the case. There's just no such wording. When I say the party is going to start at eight, I say in the future at eight o'clock, that's when the party is going to stop. That's what I mean when I use that phrase. I don't mean the party is currently set to start at eight. And then there's going to be some contingencies and then it might not. No, I'm, I'm actually making a claim about the future. And I, I don't even believe the future exists, right? And so, again, my construct is that everything is mental models and the models are for practicality's sake. Humans act and behave based on the practicality of their models, which is not to be confused with God having unmediated access to the fundamental truths of all propositions. Mediated models, mental constructs are going to be different and operate differently. Uh, so that's that's going to be something that the first, an open theist of the first type is going to say that there are no future contingent truths. And because there are none, God can't know them. So God doesn't know them. Right. But they want to say that God is omniscient because it's no, I guess it's no mark against his omniscience that he can't know something that is, is impossible to know. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's going to be. Uh, David writes, models are mostly wrong. And, th and that's true. Uh, for any set of data, you could have multiple models to explain that data set. And so um, I did do an interview that's not published yet with an author who's going over mimetic theory. And it's like, well, what what kind of evidence exists in reality that points us to mimetic theory being true and uh, Nietzschean will to power being false it's like they're just both models of human action and uh one might be more practical than the other or whatnot but there's nothing to say that that model's false and the nietzschean model's true or that they're both false models of the world different philosophers have the, these different models of the world and they just kind of make things up and they say hey see all this data fits my model and if you make your model wide enough it explains all the all the data and then uh then you have to wonder how practical it is but that will be an interesting interview coming out in October. Components of, uh, of type two, right? So uh, a lot of us uh, are, are concerned with the idea that there aren't any future contingent truths. I mean, just reporting, this is a psychological report maybe for me, uh, it, that there are future contingent truths seems to me about as clear a datum <laughs> Uh, as there is and interesting things about uh, when you spend some time in philosophy is finding that uh, uh, just the opposite of something that seems to you to be as clear a, a datum as possible uh, seems to be as clear a possible a datum for somebody, uh, uh, a fellow fellow philosopher and you know how you would make progress on these, you know, clear, uh, clear intuitions when they oppose each other's uh is is difficult but um uh, a number of open theists do share my view uh, and the view of many i would i think a majority of philosophers that there are future contingent truths um so how is it that god could lack a knowledge of them well maybe uh a genuinely future contingent truth is one that is logically unknowable um and so in a presentism model which which I hold to, there's not going to be such thing as a contingent future truth. Again, the future doesn't exist to have truth values. Truth values in themselves are a mental construct. And so I would deny that even though we, we could, you know, my the party starts at eight. That, that's a practical statement and that's a contingent future value. But its usefulness to us is in how we behave based on those expectations. If people start showing up maybe at, at 7.50 or for the people like me showing up at like 8.20 or something like that, you know, that that practical goal achieved generally what it was intended to do. It's it's a practical. People, people are practical. But uh, yeah, a lot of philosophers get pretty involved in, is there future propositional true statements? Do they have this property that that is toggleable and you could go to like this is contingent or this is this is set or necessary and non-necessary and all these propositions somewhere exist in the ether with all these value sets that it's like it's like a file like if you click on your file and go to properties and then you you could see a list of properties that could have various value sets and that's what the world is modeled as in this again i i think this is kind of the idea of plato's idea of the forms that there's perfect forms out there 
and then everything kind of mirrors these forms. There's like objects in ethereal space, and one of those properties is like contingency or something like that. I think this is a fundamentally Platonistic view about, oh, in this interview, David Hunt says that he is a Neoplatonist. Oh, I forgot entirely about that. But uh, he, he says, hey, I, I think this uh, Augustine thing, Augustine, he says, Augustine, I'm reading Augustine. Augustine is clearly a, a Platonist. And he says, the question is whether that's a good or a bad thing. I think it's a good thing because I'm a Neoplatonist. Oh, oh, it is in here. Oh, I wonder I wonder where that's at. Um, it, it's probably in the tradition when they start talking about church tradition. Uh, but that's a pretty big segment. I don't know if we're going to get there tonight. But I did, I did find that little gem out of this conversation. A, a biblical a scholar, we'll say, uh, admitting to being a Neoplatonist and admitting to Neoplatonist contamination. He does, he's not going to call it contamination. He's going to say that it was like, like a boost to Christianity. It was heightening the sense in which uh, Christianity is supposed to be thought of. It, it's a benefit, a boon to Christianity to incorporate this Neoplatonic thought. David Hunt does that for us. It's it's like this this stuff exists out in the wild. You just have to know where to look for, and you can see it. And uh, just as we don't uh, require that uh, divine omnipotence be able to encompass uh, what is logically undoable, we shouldn't require that uh, God's knowledge encompass what is logically uh, unknowable. You know, why is it logically unknowable? Well, you know, knowledge is more than true belief. Uh, there has to be something to, uh, you know, raise uh, a true belief to the status of. Yeah. So uh, uh, like a classical example of that in like epistemology type classes is uh, how about like a broken watch or something like that? And uh, your watch is broken. It's going to be right once or twice a day, depending on what type of watch and, and how it measures time. Let's say it's a it's a military time watch. It's going to be right once a day. If someone asks you the time. And you look at your watch, it just happens to be the right time. And you tell them the right time. You don't, people wouldn't say that you knew what time it was. You were just accidentally correct by looking at uh, some sort of metric that in normal circumstances would have led people to say, you know what time it is, right? And so you could be accidentally correct. Your your knowledge can line up with truth, but people uh, will say that that's not actual knowledge just, just due to the fact that it it didn't have proper justification. So uh, back in my college days, I wrote a whole paper on this, arguing that knowledge is best defined as um, your your internal uh, idea of what is true lines up with a preponderance of evidence with what is what actually exists, and uh, there's there's some sort of indication towards that. I don't know something like that, but um, still, this is a hotly debated it's a hotly debated issue because we're trying to build metaphysical formulas for what inherently is just practical. And uh, we, we really like philosophers who study this stuff on a full-time basis, debate this and they debate this till today. Why? Because uh, do you debate something that is like hard and true and, uh, and intuitive? You don't, you debate the things that are, are flexible and loose and there's gray areas and there's uh, variations and so philosophers today don't actually know how to define knowledge. It's kind of like that Supreme Court thing. It's like, I'll know knowledge when I see it. Uh, you just really can't define it beforehand. And that's that's typically how people 
operate, right? Of knowledge. And uh, if uh, uh, there aren't any present conditions um, uh, predetermining how things will turn out tomorrow, it's unclear what is presently available to raise that true belief to uh, to knowledge. In fact, it's even tougher for God um, because human beings can have fallible knowledge. I, I can know something. I can have good grounds uh, for thinking that uh, uh, something's going to happen tomorrow. That might. So let's talk about different types of open theists. He has three listed here. And is God infallible in all that he believes? Type one, two, three says yes. So there's going to be a type of open theist that says, yeah, God could be wrong about things. Like, for example, in the Bible, if God has failed expectations, Will Duffy has an entire category on his uh, verse listing, which he talks about different categories that prove open theism, God's failed expectations. Yeah, God can expect something and that something doesn't have to materialize. And the people who hold to God is infallible and in all that he believes, there, there's a few mental justifications for that. It's like, oh, he believed it contingently true. He thought it was most probable, but there's a chance. That, well, yeah, but he actually thought it was going to happen. He thought it was going to materialize it. When he's, he's talking about things, it's not like, oh, this will happen unless these off events. Ha he actually believes these things are going to materialize and then they don't materialize. And so what does it mean God is infallible in all that he believes? Is that a biblical concept? Uh, if it is denying that, denying open theism? No. So we should probably add a fourth category, people who deny that God can be quote-unquote infallible. It's kind of loaded language in all that he believes. Yeah, God could have failed, failed expectations. How about God is omniscient? Usually you're going to have the open theists that have dynamic omniscience or different variations of, of omniscience. How about just divine nescience? There's a very interesting book in which the author argues for a metaphysical formula for which God can't know current circumstances. And it's called uh, God's Absence and the Charismatic Presence. And it argues that in instances such as uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, because of the sin God is metaphysically repulsed from those areas. And so he's not actually there observing because of this metaphysical formula that's out of play. I mean, not all, not all uh, nescient advocates would advocate this model. It's just a formulistic model for non-omniscience. And so another type, in addition to non-omniscience formulaic would probably be people who say, oh, God doesn't have to know things. And so if God decides not to be in Sodom on his own volition, that's fine. And maybe even a fifth type that uh, there's some things that God's currently incapable of knowing. Anyone who's denying classical omniscience is going to be an open theist. And maybe, maybe it is practical to talk about these three main types because that's mostly what you run into. But there are other variations that would uh, have different answers to all these questions. Again, open theism is a wide and diverse field of people with loose connections based on uh, vague, uh, vague criteria. And the, well, it's not super vague. It's just denial of the classical attributes, denial of divine simplicity, a denial of immutability, impassibility, the idea that God can learn, that God can innovate, that God has discursive knowledge, that God can love and change. These are the things that unite open theists overall. Um, the, the variations on God's knowledge might be like a red herring. My neighbor's going to mow his lawn because he always does on uh, on, on uh, uh, you know Fridays or or, or whatever. 
So I can have a true belief that has good warrant behind it um, uh, to the point where we might want to say that uh, I knew that he was going to mow his lawn. Maybe he also told me he was going to. Yeah, I'm going to mow. So uh, Idol Killer Warren, he's he's kind of the dynamic omniscience type, and he wants to say God God's infallibility wasn't jeopardized by God believing an event would occur which did not materialize. And okay, uh, he says in the moment. This is Idol Killer. God's belief was justified, not obtaining later due to rebellious free agents. It doesn't negate this justification. Absolutely, his beliefs were justified. But he did have a justified belief. God thought something was going to happen, and that thing did not materialize. In in the theological debates, they're going to claim that that's a violation of infallibility because what God thought would be true did not materialize. Uh, regardless of of the events that surround it, and so uh, so what what people would probably expect to see if God is always cav uh, is is operating based on probabilities. I don't operate based on probabilities. I will go to work tomorrow. I'm not saying, oh, there's a ninety percent chance, but there might be a car accident. Nothing like that. I'm just saying I will go to church tomorrow god says i thought she would return to me she did not return and then her rebellious sister saw and other verses as well the things that god thought were going to obtain just didn't it's not like he's throwing probabilities he, he thought it was going to happen it didn't and so does that violate infallibility Cla normal theologians would say yes his his knowledge did not obtain oh my lawn again tomorrow as i always do right uh, the thing is that uh, God needs uh, uh, more assurance than that uh, to to know the future, uh, because God cannot be mistaken. I will sometimes be mistaken uh, about. Uh... Yeah, Warren. Warren again writes: knowledge based in an external grounding doesn't seem to compromise or negate his infallibility, in my opinion. Yeah, again, that's why I said infallibility is like a loaded word. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that's like bad or made made God fallible for thinking that people would react in a certain way, and then it just doesn't obtain. I wouldn't use that language, uh, but a lot of people you're dealing with will use that language, and they'll they'll try to get quotes from you using that language. So they could be like, Matt Slick could post like a, his webpage and say. I asked this open theist 20 variations of this question to make him say this uh, specific statement and he said it. And so here's the clip out of context without all his, his, his talk, the, the context talking about what he means when he's saying it. And so, yeah, I, I get it. I, I'm not saying that God is fallible for thinking something will occur, which doesn't obtain. I'm just saying that would violate the traditional idea of infallibility. We're going to skip forward and we're going to go to uh, open theist and church tradition. Approach all of these reasons, scriptural, traditional, and, and philosophical. It, uh, you know, one of the priests at our Episcopal church uh, tells uh, about a, a theology professor of hers in seminary who uh, uh, had a dream in which she, uh, 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 you know, appears, she's in the afterlife, she appears before the heavenly courts, uh, sits in God's bosom, and uh, because she was a theology professor in life, of course, she asks uh, God, uh, so how much of it did I get right? And uh, God answers, smiling, not much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
I, I expect <laughs> the same will happen to me as well. Uh, and I, I appreciate that you started off. Uh, it's it's like the uh, Korean War, Vietnam War generation. These are their like uh, cute little stories. They're like, yeah, um, the per person gets to heaven and God's like, oh, you get to come in anyways. You're wrong about everything. And they're all like... I, I just think it's an interesting generational divide. The, the lack of edginess, the, the, the boomer meme and this about it. Uh, it. It's cute. This this interview with, I mean, how we need to exercise, you know, approach these questions with a, in a charitable spirit. And uh, we see as in a glass darkly. And I have a very keen sense of that. And uh, all these reasons have reasons on the other side. And they start with the scripture. I mean, there are, there are scriptural passages that can be used as proof texts for uh, exhaustive uh, foreknowledge. There's the, you know, the famous Psalm um, uh, 139, you know, when including, uh, you know, you know, passages like even before a word is on my mouth, O Lord, you know it. Uh, yeah. So this this is their mental leaps of logic. He's grown up in a church who has taught uh, a divine classical omniscience all his life. And so he'll turn to a page where uh, David says, hey, God, before I speak, you know what I'm going to say? And he's going to say, see, eternal, ungenerated, a simple, timeless, unfalsifiable foreknowledge of all events, exhaustive. Um, it must obtain. It's, it's non-discursive in the mind of God. See, King David just said that before he talks, God knows what he's going to say. Um, and he thinks this is a good argument. And he's like smiling and saying, oh, but Theus can't deal with this. Uh, the only option I see when I read this is that eternal, ungenerated, innate knowledge within a timeless God. Um, yeah, that's that's a pretty far fetch. And and the, he, he's so like casual about it. He, I, you, you know, he actually believes this stuff. He's been so thoroughly ingrained into this. He thinks it's a good argument. And he's, he's, he's laughing. It's like, have you ever dealt with what the chapter actually talks about? How God searches him to know him? And then it, it starts and ends like that. God, you searched me and, and then you know me. And then he starts talking about how God knows what he's going to say. Because he searched him. Because God searched him. And then there's a call for more searching at the end of the chapter. Search me and figure out God. God obtain information about me see if there's any wicked uh information in me see if there's any wicked ways in me god that's this is the whole verse and it's turned into this weird metaphysical claim it's like they're desperate for proof text uh completely uh and there's many you know texts like that that seem to strongly indicate uh, strongly that, uh, indicate the, uh, contingent strongly uh, uh, I say, hey, daughter, uh, I know what you're, she's going to ask me for ice cream every day. Daughter, I know what you're going to, she comes downstairs. Hey, daughter, I know what you're going to say before you say it. You're going to ask me for ice cream. That's not, nobody reading the, that story of my interaction with my daughter is going to be like, wow, he must have some sort of ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, unfalsifiable, exhaustive knowledge of all future events. No one's going to do that. No one in their right mind would ever come to that conclusion. Maybe, maybe in a thousand years, uh, there's a story written about me, and it becomes like a Bible, and a whole crop of Calvinists, uh, they, they appear on the scene, and they're like, this guy, Chris Fisher, had um, all these Calvinistic, uh, Neoplanistic attributes of uh, acity, divine simplicity, timelessness. Look at this story where he's able to predict 
what his daughter says before his daughter says it. See, proof of our attributes. There's nothing, you can't say anything. That it must mean that. There's no other reading of that. It's, it's be really hard to find a different meaning. That's what's happening here. It's 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 terrible. Um, I think a lot of people are starting to see through this this charade. It's 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 not it's not willful. This guy actually believes it. I, he's 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 grown up. He's lived this his entire life. He thinks this is a good argument. He's heard it enough times where he thinks, hey, this is a pretty strong proof text for my view. Future. Um, but on the other hand, you know, open theists, uh, some of them think that the scriptures, they're strong suit, uh, because there's, uh, David writes, I knew you'd be wearing a black shirt, bro. I'm omniscient. Yeah, absolutely. There's all kinds of openest, you know, friendly passages, uh, in which God expects something that doesn't in fact happen. He changes his mind, he expresses regret or frustration and so on. Um, so you've got this uh, this uh, evidence and tension, and then the question is, uh, you know, how well can your side deal hermeneutically with uh, with the text on the other side? I'll just I'll just say I think it's uh, uh, I'll, I'll have an easier time dealing with the openest friendly <laughs> text that they have dealing with uh, with mine, but uh, they're yeah. So this is actually key. How do they deal with openest text? It's usually some sort of mechanism to claim that the text doesn't have the meaning that's it's talking about be condescending language that's pretty pretty uh common which is fairly equivalent to anthropomorphism claims it's like oh it's just god speaking on our level how's that dealing with the text you've just invented a mechanic to dismiss the text entirely that's that's not a better way to deal with the text than to employ normal human idiomatic speech. Like it says, God knows all things. It's like, well, okay, yeah, uh, the Bible throughout says that people know all things too. And so what's the extent? What's the context? What's the what's going on uh, in this particular verse? What's it referring to? Is it limited by context? When it says God's not a man that he should lie or repent, What's going on in context? What's the meaning? Is is there any limitations per the context? What's it specifically about? Who's it being communicated to? For what reason? Those are those are the things. If you actually care about the text, that those are going to be the arguments that you go through and talk about, rather than employing some sort of blanket rejection hermeneutics, saying there's never any verse everywhere if it existed in the Bible that could falsify my belief. That's that's literally what they introduced to the conversation. There's no verse, no matter the wording, no matter how far-fetched, no matter what, that if it was found in the Bible, my view would be false. It was funny. Uh, I was on Facebook with Chris Date, Calvinist, and uh, he, he said, uh, he asked me, oh, I asked him. I said, what combination of words, if found in the Bible, would convince you that that particular author was an open theist. I don't think he actually answered me, but he did respond with the question. He said, um, I could ask you the same thing. What, what what particular language, if found in the Bible, would make you think that God has this uh, normal uh, classical omniscience? And I said, oh, there's, there's plenty of things. And I, I took out a bunch of quotes from Gnostic literature 
talking about God's property and knowledge. I don't know if it was a bunch, maybe it was like one or two, but uh, yeah, if that, that language was found specifically in the Bible, I would have strong reason to believe that that particular author had a Neoplatonistic concept of God. My view is not, you know, you, you read these people and you, and you could say, Hey, these people are definitely Neoplatonists because of what they wrote. It's pretty obvious. They put this language in there. This language has meaning. They're talking about God's ineffability, his simplicity, his, uh, uh, not beyond being unable to be described apart for an ex, uh, apart from uh, the entire world, ineffability, undescribability, that type of stuff. It's, it's just, just throughout their works. That's that's actually what they focus on, too. And they write huge paragraphs about that, describing their beliefs. In context, it's, it's very fairly clear what's going on in there. Yes, if that's found in the Bible, I would have a reason to believe that that particular author was not an open theist within the biblical context. Yes, my, my views are falsifiable. Their views are not. They have a hermeneutic that can dismiss any combination of words, no matter what it, what combination, where it's at, what context, no matter the context, they have a hermeneutic that can dismiss anything to say that their views are true regardless. Their views are non-falsifiable, and they don't want their views to be falsifiable because that, that would be a huge detriment. They're going to think the opposite. Um, so I, I don't know that it can be settled on the basis of a scripture. I don't want to, you know, make, make much hay out of, out of that. Um, I, I think for me, maybe, um, I, he says it can't be settled from scripture. So we got to go outside of scripture because I got my verses. They got theirs. We kind of cancel out. Let's debate philosophy that the verses just cancel. We could, we should talk for we, we Have we talked about philosophy yet? That's where we're going to find the truth in all this. Hey, we don't need to talk about the, the Bible there. I think tradition points more unequivocally in, in favor of, of my classical theist um, uh, position. Um, and um, that makes... Mr. Gunning Peter writes, if God isn't open-minded, does that mean he is closed-minded? That's actually a rhetorical advantage for the label open theism. A lot of open theists are like, we should ditch this label because of all the negative connotations. Well... Oh man, um, Richard Nixon, when he was, Richard Nixon was actually a fairly popular president that people loved and the deep state hated him to, so tried to destroy him and sabotage him, but he actually won in a fairly big landslide. And one of his campaign slogans was, you know, a different name for Richard is Dick and it's, you can't lick our, I'm not going to trying to be vulgar here, but the counter argument to that is yes, we can lick your exploitative uh um so the opposite of close or open theism is closed theism so rhetorically it is actually a pretty useful label right because you don't want to be like closed closed off you know and so um i i do i do suggest that we do stick with the label for rhetorical reasons uh just like richard nixon R richard nixon won in a landslide uh, we got uh, G consciousness here. Hey, uh, we need to actually get together sometime. Uh, talk sometime. Haven't talked to you in a long time. It's, that arguably puts the burden on uh, the opposing views. Uh, many you know, open theists look for, you know, early, you know, proto, you know, openest uh, figures in the history of the church, and it's a 
uh, it's a difficult, uh, difficult task. Um, uh, it, it is an innovation. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong, but it's an innovation. Um, and so I think it, it bears the burden of proof. Um, you know, if you're a real hardline solo scriptura Protestant, you might not attach much weight to uh, tradition. Um, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a small C Catholic, a mere Christian like C.S. Lewis. Uh, and I actually care a lot about, about the tradition. Um, I think it's a... And tradition's not unimportant. He's not wrong. And so open theists do have the burden of proof to talk about why a lot of people within the Christi Christian tradition, all, all the famous writers throughout the centuries, why they all embrace this classical theism. That is that is a burden that we have to prove. That's why I, it's not like I don't like super care about Platonism, but I probably read more Platonistic material than like anyone I know. It's not because I love Platonism, Platonistic theology and philosophy. I really don't. It's just that's what you have to do if you care about the origins, the consequences, the influence, the ideas and spread of Neoplatonism into the Christian religion. You have to understand these concepts. They're, they're, not, they're not interesting. I don't think they're particularly novel. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't consider Plato... Plato probably had a high IQ, but a lot of times these high IQ people start building false models, false correlations based on the data. And it's like, I don't think, I don't think it flows uh, that well, my friend, but uh, yeah, um, that is important to understand church history and keep in mind that the people writing the church history, they're not the layman. They don't have the layman beliefs. Literally there's a bishop there, a mob rose against him to try to kick him out and possibly kill him and supplant him because he said that uh, God didn't have a body. <laughs> yep, that, that was the idea. Uh, arguing for incorporeality led to a mob trying to dispose a bishop that he had to kind of like use weasel words to get out of and then kind of go back on his words. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that unless they talked about these mob uprisings against some of their beliefs what the actual common people believe because the common people are not the ones writing the books. The common, the people writing the books are the origins of Alexandria who are ingrained in Platonic philosophy. They're the ones creating the records and creating the records, which are sustained and who are they sustained by this elite class. And so that that's the records coming down. So we get the sense of what the Vok, the, the people, the Vox, what they, the, the vulgar, uh, you know, Latin Vulgate, that's the, that's the popular language, uh, language of the people. We get a sense of what they believe through the controversies that are recorded of interaction between normal people and the elite in Christianity. And so you, you do have to consider that. A little intellectually arrogant not to care uh, about it. Um, and... Um, Openness will. Uh, there's no doubt that the, the tradition was influenced by by pagan philosophy, in particular Neoplatonism. Uh, Here's the clip. You can't read Augustine's Confessions, for example, without uh, uh, without you know realizing that. Yeah, yeah, that that exactly is true. You cannot read Augustine's Confessions without realizing that Neoplatonism influenced Christianity. Right there, uh, quote. Maybe we maybe we need to clip this context, and I, I probably should. I should probably download this and clip it and re-upload it. Yes, 
Um, here, here's the thing. People read confessions. They're like, I don't see Neoplatonism. It's like, do you know anything about Neoplatonism or Platonism generally? Do you, any, do you know anything about Platonism to be able to spot what's going on when Augustine talks about seeing things within his mind, uh, mind's eye and talking about the incorporeality of God and these things that he's learning from the Platonism? Or do you know what you're even looking for to spot the, the Platonism unless you're embedded in that cultural tradition at that time you're going to miss it but here here's david hunt saying yeah obviously obviously got this is this guy's a neoplatonist we'll, we'll hear what he says um and openness will often claim that, that the tradition was corrupted by pagan philosophy whether it amounts to corruption of course depends on whether whether it was a beneficent influence or a, uh, or a bad influence i tend to I, okay oh I, I cut him off but Oh, this is another beautiful. This is this is part of this beautiful quote. He's like, you know, um, obviously Neoplatonism influenced Christianity, but I think it's a good thing. It was a boon to Christianity, so it's not actually corruption of the church. Uh, that 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 is the argument. To think uh, uh, as a Neoplatonist myself, <laughs> I tend to think that it was a beneficent influence, but. Um, um, yeah, I mean, what what we're going to want to talk about. And, and there it is. Uh, cut that out. He says, as a Neoplatonist myself, yes, uh, Nietzsche wrote that Christianity is Platonism for the people. Nietzsche knew what he was talking about, at least in that regard. Yes, Christianity is Platonism for the people. It's this this uh, Vox, uh, Vox Platonism, this popularized Platonism in which you know, it's uh, escape from the material, right? It's this idea of this transcendent uh, God that is can't be affected by us, has no emotions or movements or anything like that. Christianity is Platonism for the people. Here's David Hunt saying, yeah, he is a Neoplatonist. Saying, yeah, Christianity was influenced by Neoplatonism. All right, thank you. That's all, th the, the whole question, the whole question is moot. It's not, it's not it's not a debate anymore. Um, you just admitted that Christianity was influenced by Neoplatonism, incorporated a lot of Neoplatonic values. You think it's a good thing, but that's that's what we point to. We say, hey, very early in Christianity, Christianity was Platonized, and so tradition is going to represent this Platonizing. And he says, yes. Thank you. We, we don't have to have that debate anymore. It has been finally settled by David Hunt. Uh, David writes, inflation is a good thing. Oh, that's that's where we are in, like, uh, uh, you know, you see those charts. It's like, inflation uh, is a conspiracy theory. Oh, inflation's not happening. Yes, some inflation might be happening. Oh, yeah, inflation's happening, but it is a good thing. You know, that that's how the narrative shifts based on the evidence. Uh, you, you kind of feel like that might be the stages of people who really don't know Christian history, like the Calvinists be like, Oh no, no, Christianity wasn't Platonized. You know, that they might start studying a little bit. They're like, maybe there was some overlap. Then they're like, hey, maybe the, it was actually a good thing. Yeah, may, maybe the synthesis actually increased the value of Christianity. This is this Neoplatonism is a great thing. That's where we are, David Hunt level. That's the top level of uh, scholarly uh acumen i guess uh scholarly achievement in the calvinist i don't know if the guy's a calvinist or anything in the calvinist uh, cycles it, he has reached the top level more is the philosophical 
arguments, uh, because if uh, a knowledge of future contingent truths is simply, you know, conceptually unavailable, then it doesn't matter what the tradition says. Uh, and that's going to certainly have to um, uh, determine uh, uh, which which scriptures you're going to use to interpret other other scriptures. Some open theists um, uh, cite the uh, the problem of evil as uh, as a reason for being an openness. That the problem of evil is easier uh, under open theism. The less God knows about the contingent future, the less we can hold Him responsible uh, for how things uh, turn out. Um, and uh, John Sanders, um, one of the leading open open theists, actually, uh, you know, tells a story about uh, his uh, his brother uh, killed in a motorcycle accident, and uh, uh, how he was not comforted at all by by other Christians telling him, oh, maybe this is part of God's plan, and. Uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so he, he makes the case here, and it's actually a pretty decent case. And the idea is that uh, the problem of evil, it's not like it's not like open theism uh, negates the problem of evil. It doesn't, doesn't solve, uh, assuming there is a problem of evil, the uh, idea is that if God knew that evil things are going to happen and then he created the world, then he's culpable a little bit in that evil. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, his argument here is that in the open theist model, God is interacting in real time. And even like he gives an example of his nephew, I believe, who had cancer being born. So he only lived maybe a year with cancer the entire time. It's, it's a very horrific story. And uh, he says the problem of evil, it, it's not solved by open theism because God could have stepped in at any time, even in the John Sanders incident. John Sanders, brothers, there's, there's some portions of seconds before for John Sanders brothers died that God could have intervened in. And so, yeah, I, I do think that is valid. It's not as evil. It, I wouldn't say it's as evil as Calvinism that God makes everything happen. Like uh, any, like the cancer for the kid is actually pretty awful. And uh, so we'll use that example that he uses. The kid is born with cancer, lives one year while having cancer the entire time and then dies. In Calvinism, that was eternally predestined and decided and brought about by God for God's maximum glory. That that sounds pretty evil to me. That doesn't that doesn't negate its any truth value. Maybe maybe we live in a universe where God is the ultimate sadist. It, that could be the case, and I'll, I'll grant the Calvinist that God could in fact be the ultimate sadist. That's a possibility that we have to consider. Um, but in open theism, God is standing by either watching this happen and allowing it to happen or he's unable to intervene or he doesn't know what's happening. So there, there's some sort of uh, negative consequences, even for open theism, God is culpable or impotent in some respect within open theism as well. So it's not, it's not like open theism solves all these conceptual problems and it's actually a conceptual problem because it's it's a problem that we've invented based on how we think that the universe should operate and then we're trying to impose it back onto reality if if god was truly just and loving this is how he should act and if he doesn't act that way then he's not that 
right? So it's it's kind of like a backfilling of our standards onto God. And yes, uh, God is, would be, even an open theist model, culpable in some aspect for these things. Uh, so I will admit that. Terrence Freeth, uh, Fretheim, Freethium, I always said Freethium, Fretheim, Terrence uh, Fretheim also admits this um, in his uh, response during, uh, what was it, uh, the Society of Biblical Literature, he, he gave a presentation which he was responding to a Thomas J. Orr type open theist saying, yeah, um, you're not going to actually lose culpability in the biblical model. God is responsible for his creation in some respect. The Thomas J. Ord model tries to negate God's culpability by saying God, because of his love, because of this metaphysical aspect of God's love, he's unable to respond, therefore, thereby taking away this culpability because he couldn't respond to it. He's unable to positively affect that situation to a better outcome. And so that's how the Thomas J. Ord model does away with it. But just not, not normal open theism, it's not going to get rid of that. But we're almost about an hour, and uh, so I, I do got to get going. I got some things to do tonight. We'll 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 play them a little bit more. He's just going to talk about the kid cancer instance. I don't know if there's a good spot in the video that we could uh, quick flip to. Maybe we'll just replay him saying he's a Platonist. That might actually be a good way to to uh, play us out. Tradition says, uh, and that's going to certainly have to. Um, uh, determine uh, uh, which which scriptures you're going to use to interpret other other scriptures. Some open theists um, uh, cite the uh, the problem of evil as uh, as a reason for being an openness. It did go back far enough. Easier. So openness will my classical theist um, uh, position. Um, and um, that makes that arguably puts the burden on uh, the opposing views. Uh, many you know, open theists look for, you know, early, you know, proto, you know, openest uh, Here figures it is. in the history of the church. And it's a come on. Uh, it's a difficult, uh, difficult task. Um, uh, it, it is an innovation. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong, but it's an innovation. Um, and so I think it. it bears the burden of proof. Um, you know, if you're a real hardline solo scriptura Protestant, you might not attach much weight to uh, tradition. Um, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a small C Catholic, a mere Christian like C.S. Lewis. Uh, and I actually care a lot about, about the tradition. Um, I think it's a little intellectually arrogant not to care uh, about it. Um, and um, openness will, uh, it, there's no doubt that the, the tradition was influenced by, by pagan philosophy, in particular Neoplatonism. Uh, you can't read Augustine's Confessions, for example, without, uh, uh, without you know, realizing that. Um, and openness will often claim that, that the tradition was corrupted by pagan philosophy. Whether it amounts to corruption, of course, depends on whether whether it was a beneficent influence or uh, or a bad influence. I tend to think, uh, uh, as a Neoplatonist myself, <laughs> I tend to think that it was a beneficent influence. But um, 
so there we have it. Uh, uh, Christianity was influenced by Neoplatonism, and he's a Neoplatonist himself. He thinks it's a good thing. Fantastic. Uh, that's that's what we wanted. That's what we got. Uh, great admission, and our our host here is smiling. So hopefully, his his channel's the Analytic Christian. Hopefully, his host internalizes that. And uh, if he has an open theist on again, apparently he interviewed an open theist at one point. Um, if he has someone on again, maybe maybe that uh, that might be useful to him in some respect. Irenic right, uh, writes that David Hunt, doesn't he admit that Neoplatonism is an innovation? He just told us it was. He just told us that there was an influence of Neoplatonism in Christianity. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. So calling open theism an innovation where literally it's like the legit teaching of the Bible. You find people like Christine Hayes just talking casually about uh, Semite religion, uh, Jewish religion, Israelite religion. It's not Neoplatonism. It's not Calvinism. It's just an understanding that God is personable. He's relational. Uh, he has emotions. He has feelings. He has discursive thoughts. He's not outside of time. Uh, he changes daily. He has regrets. He has expectations. He has failed expectations. You can annoy him. Uh, you can make him angry. Remember Moses trying to make him angry, saying, hey, I, I don't actually want to go to Egypt, God. Um, I can't talk very well. I don't know who's sending me. And, and he's like, don't be angry at me, God. And God is just like, he gets angry. He's like, what, what are you doing? And what are you you're testing my patience? This conversation is testing my patience. That's who we actually see in the Bible. We don't see the Neoplatonistic uh, conception of God. We don't see a Spock that's in a timeless void, just calculating pure reason and logic and metaphysics and running calculations and formulas to react in a perfect way to each circumstances that's thrown at him based on metaphysical formulas, computations. We see God acting in the moment, sometimes impulsively. Can God be impulsive? I guess that's our question for tonight. Within the Bible, is God ever impulsive? Is that even a bad thing? Is it a bad thing to be impulsive? Who's God's favorite person, a man after God's own heart? King David. Is King David impulsive? And is that, in some respect, how King David is a man after God's own heart? We'll probably cut there. But uh, I, th I think it's an interesting interview. I think there's a, a few gems. I had forgotten about this gem when we started this video. And so this this is a pretty good gem to get out of this video. This admission of uh, Neoplatonic influences and a personal admission of being a Neoplatonist himself. And now I'm all excited, right? But uh, we will cut there. Uh, thanks for listening. Questions and comments, put that down below or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group. Thank you for listening.